This episode is sponsored by UPS. To honor World Environment Day, UPS is matching the carbon offsets of all packages shipped via its carbon neutral program in June. To start shipping more sustainably, visit sustainability.ups.com forward slash match. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a new angel fund dedicated to decarbonization, voices of the clean energy equity movement, how sustainability professionals can uplift the black community, and can on-demand delivery apps encourage low-carbon food? It's a lot to chew on this week on 350. It's June 12th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me per usual from Midland Park, New Jersey, it's editorial director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. I hope you're well today. I'm doing okay. How has your week been? Hot, hazy, and humid. Yeah, and what about the weather? But um bum Couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah, right? No, it, it's been it's been a it's been a reflective week. I feel more energized than I have in a long time about possibilities. Um, problems, of course, but possibilities out of those problems. And I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, like, I, I feel so excited about my job right now because I get to watch and participate in the dialogue that's going to lead us out of this, <laughs> this twofold situation of, of course, the awakening that we're having in the United States, I believe around the world, I, I mean, I've been so amazed by the, the support around the world for the racial justice movement. Um, but of course, obviously, for me, the, the one of the most exciting epiphanies has been the, the, the link between this and, and the climate tech movement that I'm really passionate about. And so I feel like there's so much to talk about and so many things to cover and report on. Yeah. And yeah. you wrote a great piece this week about... Uh, race and diversity among the venture capitalists that are funding the climate tech movement. And I think that, that that's just a really great topic that about which we've really only scratched the surface, but lots more to mm -hmm. talk about because mm -hmm. we, you know, gets into the structural inequities and unfairness and, and yes, racism that's in our system. This is one aspect of that, of who, who gets uh, funded for mm -hmm. entrepreneurship particularly right now when uh, the pandemic and the, and the recession, yes, we're officially in one, um, uh, has uh, decimated so many uh, small businesses and uh, overwhelmingly uh, black and minority-led businesses um, that we need to uh, make sure that we're finding ways to bring the, uh, entrepreneurs of all types into, into, back into the economy. And yeah, there's a lot of technology and entrepreneurs behind that. And and it's, 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 as you pointed out, it's overwhelmingly white in terms of who's making the decisions and ultimately who gets funded. 
Yep. So what are you, what are you thinking about? I know you've got a lot on your plate. What's, what's on your mind today? Well, I, I've been pretty encouraged as you, as you have about this week. I feel that we're, we haven't turned a corner, but we're, we're heading into a turn that's, um, you know, maybe a, a, a long time coming and, and it's going to take a while to turn, but it feels like we're onto something here. We, the world, um, and, and we at Greenbiz, I mean, we have had the, the conversations that have started over the past couple of weeks continued very much this week, and, and I know they'll be continuing next week and the week after and the week after because uh, we uh, are cognizant of, of, of our part of this in terms of, uh, you know, who we interview, for example, for stories, uh, you know, and, and to some extent who is writing those stories. Uh, and you know and how we talk about things, and it, it just feels really healthy, and yes, at the same time hard, and sometimes uncomfortable. Uh, but uh, I think this is, uh, as I said, long overdue and a really important process here. So that's part of it. Um, switching gears a little bit, the other thing I'm excited about is something we launched this week, which is the first of our leadership development online courses. This one is called Leading the Sustainability Transformation. It's in partnership with an organization called Wholeworks. Uh, and it's a professional certificate program that involves uh, uh, some simulation and forming teams and looking at real-world uh, circumstances uh, in terms of a global supply chain with a lot of different stakeholders and how you make decisions, uh, including uh, some decisions in developing economies where a lot of the raw materials are based and uh, and sourced and, and some of the uh, implications there of different uh, changing circumstances. And it, it just feels like... Uh, a step forward in how we train sustainability professionals to look at and address problems. So very excited about that. It's rolling out uh, this fall, and um, we'll direct you to more information about that on the uh, webpage for this week's episode. And with that, let's reflect on the Week in Review. Well, as I said before, we've we continued uh, writing about as as we will continue to do uh, some of the issues around for uh, their front burner in 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 our world. And the first one was really about uh, your piece, Heather, on uh, funding climate tech and entrepreneurs of color. Um, tell me a little bit about what you learned from that. Well, so I've been covering venture capital for some time, and I always knew there was a diversity problem. Um, Typically, some of the coverage around that has been around, not, there's not a lot of funding of women, and that's, of course, an entirely different topic. But um, as I thought about the, the, the things that I'm covering and the climate tech movement, like how important climate solutions are in moving the world forward, um, it occurred to me to kind of just take a look at, at you know, how many people of color are being funded. And this, the, the scary statistic is that less than 1% of the, the money going into new startups and so forth is going to black founders. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was just an, a staggering number. Uh, and, and if you think about it, um, it's just a huge systemic problem. And there's lots of reasons. I mean, it's very um, buddy network driven. There's a, many of the investors are white males. 
Um, they've come out of their own startups and, and the, the VC community tends to be, uh, it's just, it's just, it's just the way it's developed. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a system. It's the way the system has evolved, but it's clear that the system is broken. Um, and I, I sat on a webcast last week and that's what really inspired me to write this story. And, and also for me to connect the, the dots between our, our, our opportunity here, which is that we are looking we collectively, the, the community is looking for great solutions. And we know that some of these great solutions are going to come out of the communities that are most affected by climate change, the, the Black community, the Hispanic community in all its permutations, um, folks that are, are underserved by the clean energy economy. And this is um, a, a tipping point, a sort of a, as, a, as we turn the corner and look at what the recovery should look like, it absolutely needs to focus on this model. So um, we saw a couple of, I will say, token um, moves, one by SoftBank, which established a $100 million fund to address um, entrepreneurs of color, as well as Andreessen Horowitz. They've, they've got some money, that the, the donor advised fund that they've put together. Um, I, I will point out, actually, that they have, uh, they did speak out about this about three years ago. They were trying, they've started talking about it. Um, but we, we haven't really seen that much happen. So it's time. It really is time for this to, this system to change. Yeah, it is time. And, and you were a little bit genera- generous when you said that many of the uh, VCs are, are, are men. Um, actually, according to uh, an article a couple of years old from, from uh, Inc. Magazine, that 98% of VC money went to men, which is not surprising because 89% of partners at venture capital firms are men, the vast majority of whom are white. And so, yeah, this is, there's a huge diversity problem. And uh, as, as you said, in the past few years, there's been some moderately successful efforts to, to create more funds and more venture capitalists focused on women. Um, but but that does not address the racial, racial issue much. And um, yeah, this is this is a you know part of the institutionalized uh, structures that we're that we're trying to look at here. That if mm-hmm. only white people are making the decisions about who gets funded, they're only going to fund primarily white entrepreneurs, and that continues to extend the legacies of, of discrimination. So that's a really interesting area, and particularly as we look at this vast. Uh, new area called uh, climate tech that you've been uh, really leaning into. I think it's it's really an important conversation. But I also want to point out, uh, I think perhaps my favorite story of the week came from uh, Jeremy Bond, who is one of our 30 under 30s from uh, several years ago. Uh, a young entrepreneur uh, back then was with Interface, the carpet company. Now he's with a, a company here in San Francisco called Technion. Um, who wrote a piece, uh, he's written a few pieces for us. This one's called How Sustainability Professionals Can Uplift the Black Community. And it's a uh, it's a stern love letter, let's call it. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just to say it's 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 uh, is, is a young African American man, uh, early 30s now, um, who uh, you know was feeling the the pain and anxiety of the moment and 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 wanted to share very constructively uh, and positively th- uh, what he would like to see. Uh, all of us doing, and you know, some of them are things you probably would expect. Um, 
you know, donating to local NAACP and Black Lives Matter chapters and United Negro College Fund, but, uh, and, you know, watching movies and reading books that can help educate you on the black experience and race in America. But, but there was, uh, some deeper things as well. And, um, encourage you to read this uh, again uh, just a really nice thoughtful uh and uh, i think important piece and and as he says at the end he he's really wants to be part of a dialogue and is encouraging people to contact him with their questions their ideas their in their their feedback in general so uh kudos to jerami for for stepping up and and offering this piece and i'm always thrilled to see his byline on greenbiz.com Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, 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 I, I totally agree. I, I want to just point out two things that I'm going to really look at in this, in this particular, from his advice, his, his, his wonderful advice list here is one is um, learn the dif- difference between equality and equity. I need to spend time thinking about that because I, as I was reading the list, I was like, Ooh, yeah. You know, like we, we use that word equity a lot. Um, but it is about equality as well, or maybe more so. That was one that, that, you know, as I was going through the list, kind of stopped me in my tracks and said, yeah, that's, that's important. And, you know, it links to a page uh, from the Education Trust that, that gets into this. And uh, just re- really quickly, you know, what's the difference? Well, should student funding at every school be exactly the same? That's a question of equality. But should students who come from less get more in order to ensure they can catch up? That's a question of equity. So there's a that's just one example. And there's a, it's a nice, nice little article here that yeah. I encourage people to read. Yeah. Well, there is one other story that I want to talk about, if we can switch gears here, which is a, a piece by uh, four uh, Yale University uh, I guess students, academics, on uh, some research they did on on how on-demand food delivery apps can encourage low-carbon food. Uh, Anna Zhang, Tracy Zhao, Luke Brown, and Abby Warner wrote this, uh, and and I think that's it's just a really interesting a six-week uh, program they did where they envisioned two ways that on-demand food delivery apps could empower their users to make more climate-friendly food choices. And, and uh, they based it off of, a, of an earlier uh, Yale project. And um, uh, just, uh, I think, just really interesting example of what's possible uh, when we talk about, you know, does supply lead demand or does demand lead supply? We talk about, well, we're just giving people what they want. Yeah, I don't believe that because we shape a lot. We marketing people uh, at consumer products companies uh, shape a lot of what of of what people want, and so and 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 the way we present it to them guides them through good choices, including you know the science of where things are in the grocery shelf, the sugary you know kid things are or, or, or at knee high so the kids can see them <laughs> for example other things are out of reach uh, and and there's a science to that that's been decades in the making and and now as we order more and more food online uh, for delivery in particular you know how do those shape uh, not only what we eat but what the climate impacts are indeed and i i I love their ideas in this 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 piece because they they tie this both to the app companies, right? 
the app companies could differentiate themselves. Like we're talking about people like Grubhub and DoorDash and Seamless and maybe even Uber Eats, but you know, they could differentiate themselves by being a choice, by being the app that helps consumers who have an interest in this type of food, but also by showcasing that type of food so that consumers get more interested. And as we know, these apps are being used really frequently now. And um, I, I actually don't see that really changing. I think people are, I have discovered how um, helpful they are. And I think that that for a long time, people are not going to want to go sit in restaurants. They're going to still be doing these these pickups or takeouts or whatever you want to call them. So I feel like, number one, it's, it's a great differentiation for them. They also get a little bit into, but they didn't spend much time researching this because um, I, I asked them, um, into the restaurants, right? So as a restaurant, um, you could potentially also make a, a a difference and different and a differentiation. You could use this to differentiate your own offerings, Um once you have a audience that does want to eat healthier or more sustainable choices um, and help pe- guide people away from meat heavy dishes or so forth. So yeah, it's just, it was a really thoughtful piece. It was brought to us by Ben Saltoff and he's done a lot of work on, on climate solutions and, and he was working with them on this project and thought it was, was a great thing for them to write about. And so um, I thank him for, uh, for uh, allowing them to showcase their work. Yeah, and, and just one more point on that. It, you know, it's a two-way conversation, which is that uh, food companies, restaurants, and food delivery services can help consumers understand the impacts, uh, climate impacts in particular, of of their purchases. And I suppose the nutritional impacts are, obviously could be part of that as well, and should be. But also, consumers can signal to to restaurants that you know uh, what they want. They may you know want more beef alternatives, for example, uh, or meatless ex- meatless alternatives, um, or other things that uh, you know they feel is is, is part of a uh, climate friendly diet. Um, and I think that conversation can be much more robust than an individual diner may be saying something to a server who may or may not say it to management and uh, probably not a very effective way to, to create a bandwagon. But this is now data, which everybody loves and acts on and, and, and we can show trends and track it over time. And so I think this is a really, dare I say, appetizing way to create changes in how we think about food. Seattle-based Angel Investor Network E8, an early funder of startups including water tech firm Apana and carbon marketplace innovator Nori, is starting up a new fund dedicated to backing climate tech called Decarbonate. One of the ideas behind Decarbonate, which is a philanthropic fund, is to let a broader number of people invest in these sorts of technologies. Futurist Ramez Nam, who is an E8 member, joins me to chat about both E8 and the new fund. Mez, welcome to GreenBiz350. Thanks, Heather. It's great to be here. Okay, so first, tell me a little bit about E8. I know it has backed close to 100 companies since its start in 2006. Yeah. How long have you been involved, and what are some of the companies we'd know about? 
I've been involved since 2014. So E8 is a traditional angel group, which means that uh, the people who are accredited investors that have uh, more than a million dollars outside of their home. So a lot of people that are former Microsoft employees or Amazon employees or even current employees, those companies participate in investing in uh, early stage companies trying to make the world better and specifically trying to make the world better uh, on environmental issues, including most importantly climate change, but also things like water, food, waste, and so on. Uh, I joined in 2014 and became a board member in I think 2016. Uh, as you said, close to 100 companies, uh, some Seattle companies, our level 10 energy, which is a marketplace uh, that allows companies to more easily buy clean energy. Uh, Apana, you mentioned, uh, Nori.com, which is an amazing company that uh, pays farmers, where they create a marketplace also, that ultimately ends up helping farmers get more money to capture carbon in the soil uh, that also enriches the soil in addition to the climate benefits. So those are a few of our uh, local stories. So what's unique about the new fund? Um, why now and who are you hoping to get involved? Well, what's unique about the new fund is our, our current offering is uh, a little bit more high touch. The investors have to be uh, willing to you know, tune into our virtual meetings and they make decisions themselves on a case by case basis. And they're doing it out of their uh, you know, personal for-profit money, if you will. It's like making a stock investment, though it's hopefully having more impact uh, and you're doing it because of the company's specific impact. The new fund is really a, two things. It's, it's passive, meaning that you put money in and you trust uh, some investment professionals and advisors to pick the companies that are the best uh, fit on both impact and profit. And two, it comes out of charitable dollars. So what we realized is that a lot of people in the Seattle area, in the Northwest, in general, and around the country have uh, what they call donor-advised funds. This is where you have uh, money you've got, maybe you had a windfall from uh, selling a bunch of stock, uh, and you can uh, make it tax-free by saying, it's gonna be charitable, and I don't know what I'm gonna uh, give it to as a charity yet. So you create a little fund uh, that you know might be $10,000, might be more, uh, that you're gonna use to make charitable donations over time. And so we realized that we could uh, let people use that money to invest that money in clean energy and climate startups also. Uh, and we found that there was a lot of appetite for it, that a lot of people that had already made investments said, oh yeah, I've got a, a donor-advised fund or I'm into making charitable donations. I'll make a charitable donation to a fund that's going to invest the money in startups. And the idea is the fund invests in startups and then eventually the, the fund makes money when those startups exit. And that's more money that's now all charitable money that uh, can go to investing in more startups or donating to, to aligned charitable causes down the road. So I have to ask why now? I mean, it's a tough time, in, especially in, in investing in money. I mean, it, was there, what about the timing? Is, is there anything I should read into that or is it just happenstance? Why now is because we brought on a great executive director. We said goodbye to our longtime executive director, Christy Groudon, and brought on a, a new executive director, Mike Gria, that had experience having built such a thing in the past. And Mike had a lot of energy around this. Uh, and he uh, critically 
started this planning before COVID. Uh, that said, I think uh, you know the climate crisis is not waiting. It's just getting worse. And over the last year, uh, pre-COVID and pre the strife that's racked our uh, country, that was the main thing going on, that we saw a lot of energy around the climate crisis. Uh, but the climate crisis is going to keep getting worse no matter what. And we think that energy for the climate, for solving the climate crisis is still there. Okay, so the plan is to fund two companies, two groups of companies, I think, annually. And you're going to start with, uh, I believe it's three to six startups over the next several months. So what categories are you looking for? So we're looking for startups that can reduce uh, carbon emissions and reduce them with an eye uh, to Washington State's carbon emissions. And so we're looking for startups in sectors like mobility, electric vehicles, EV charging, EV marketplaces, EV components. We're looking for startups in uh, clean energy, clean electricity, energy storage. We're looking for startups in the smart grid space. Uh, really anything, we're looking for startups in carbon removal like Nori, uh, which is also a smart marketplace play. We're looking for really anything that has a credible claim uh, to making uh, carbon removal. They probably shouldn't be too, too far along or too, too early. Uh, the sweet spot is they've got some revenue, uh, but they're not up to a million dollars a year in revenue. So are they all local? Nope, they don't have to be local, but we have to believe that one day they could make uh, a meaningful difference in Washington State. So if you imagine Washington State's biggest single sector of emissions is transportation. So you could imagine there's a couple of big companies that you know of, Tesla in EVs, that was a little tiny startup. Uh, Tesla would not be eligible for this now. We're investing in early stage uh, private companies. Uh, but if it was, or if Tesla was a little guy, or if there was a little startup making electric motorcycles, and that was an interesting space, or solving some other part of making EVs cheap, or making EV charging really easy, uh, that would be something that we think would be important for the Northwest's uh, carbon emission reduction. Uh, even if the company was headquartered somewhere else and wasn't yet selling their products in Washington, uh, though we do prefer if they have at least product sales and potential projects in the state. So you mentioned the companies, the types of startups. What about the types of entrepreneurs? What types of entrepreneurs are you seeking? We're looking for entrepreneurs with heart. We're looking for entrepreneurs uh, that have a smart plan and we're looking for entrepreneurs that are uh, also in it for the right reason. Like you've talked to the, the Nori team and really all of those startups I just mentioned, they are all true believers uh, that are doing this to make the world a better place and are also building this as for-profit companies with smart technology and smart plans for how to get there. And probably most importantly, Climate crisis and the crisis of, of racial justice can't be uh, spread out. They can't be totally separated. They're not, they are distinct in some ways, but there's a Venn diagram where they interact. And we know that carbon emissions and related things like the particulates and smog that come from tailpipe emissions of gasoline cars hit uh, minority dense and lower income populations Harder. You know, if you are a lower income resident of this state or of the country or, or of the world, uh, you might find yourself living closer to a highway or have uh, uh, more impact of climate change on you down the road or more impact of uh, 
you know, emissions from a power plant or a dirty factory today. So we think those have a, a Venn diagram, and we think that means it makes sense also to find entrepreneurs and teams who are minorities, who are in the groups that are most impacted themselves. Because if we're going to help people build some companies in this and they're going to profit, as the entrepreneurs should, uh, we'd like some of that to go back into people from those communities. So you mentioned the impact, right? You want to see an impact. How do you measure that, right? So how do you, how do you evaluate the potential climate impact of a startup? Well, you can look and you can say that uh, we know what the, the carbon emissions of the U.S. are by category. We know what the carbon emissions of the world are by category and the carbon emissions of the Northwest by category. So that's the first one is, you know, what problem are you solving? What dirty activity could you switch to a clean activity? Um, and then we evaluate slightly more subjectively, what's the impact within that category that this startup could have if successful? Will you collaborate with other investors, like in particular, the, like the green biz audiences, big companies, and I know many of them are trying to get more involved in the startup scene, you know, will you co collaborate with others? Absolutely. If you are uh, a company in the green biz ecosystem and you would like to uh, invest in companies like this, uh, we would welcome uh bringing you in as part of our ecosystem. We also accept sponsorships from like-minded companies that want a seat at the table, uh, seeing these companies that are coming through. If you're a company that has a need that uh, you wish that something existed or you're trying to procure more clean energy or you have a particular problem that you wish you could solve in a clean way uh, or you want a new sort of offset, uh, we welcome you to reach out to us, to our executive director, Mike Ree, uh, to let him know what that need is. We're compiling uh, uh, an index of that, actually. We can keep it confidential for you, uh, but we'll use that to connect you to startups that we see uh, and uh, try to make connections across that, that scale. What other ways can investors and companies get involved with the E8? Well, if you're a startup, we'd urge you to come to our website uh, to apply for funding. Uh, if you are a uh, company in the green biz ecosystem that would be interested in uh, engaging with us and seeing these companies, you can join us as a sponsor. Uh, and if you're an investor anywhere in the country and really anywhere in the world, since all of our meetings are online now and largely they're recorded as well, so you can watch them on your own time zone. Uh, if you're an investor that qualifies as an accredited investor, meaning you need to have a million dollars of assets outside of your family home or an income of $200,000 a year if you're single or $300,000 a year uh, in a couple, uh, then you can also join us uh, and uh, make direct investments in startups as well. Uh, and all of that can be done at e8angels.com. Well, thank you for that, Mez. I appreciate you joining us here on the podcast today. Thanks, Heather. Pleasure to be here. You just heard from Ramez Nam, who is a board member of E8, talking about the new Decarbonate Fund. It's Deanna Anderson, Associate Editor here at Green Biz, and I'm here with William Jin, a business strategy consultant who has served in senior leadership positions in both nonprofit organizations and businesses. During his tenure at the Nature Conservancy, Jin served as Chief Conservation Officer and then Executive Vice President. 
While serving as executive VP, he founded NatureVest, a partnership with private investors that has brought over $200 million of investment into conservation projects worldwide. I'm chatting with Bill today about his book, Valuing Nature, a handbook for impact investing, which came out a couple weeks ago. Hi, Bill. Hey, glad to be here. So I want to start off with just kind of chatting a little bit about the state of impact investing in nature. So over a decade ago, you wrote Investing in Nature, Case Studies of Land Conservation in Collaboration with Business. Um, And I'm wondering if you can paint a picture about what has changed in the years with the business community investing in nature and how would you describe like the state of investing in nature at this moment? Well, two comments. I mean, first, the problems have become bigger and clearer, you know, 10 years ago, climate change was certainly there and a thought among scientists, but now it's here and here and now. Uh, shortages of water all across the American West and over a billion people across the world uh, don't have enough water. The conditions of our oceans continue to decline. So there's, there's a much clearer focus on the big problems uh, that we face. I would say on, on the other hand, um, it's very clear that there are increasing opportunities for investors in this space. Uh, and I would be so bold as to say that um, we are in a time that is akin to the Industrial Revolution. Just as then, we're going to have to completely change how we provide energy in this world, how we grow our food, how we transport ourselves, how we live in cities, how we build our buildings. So much has to change. And that is actually a time of optimism and uh, opportunity for entrepreneurs to think through and enable new solutions. Yeah, it sounds like there's like a huge opportunity uh, for investing right now. Are there any particular opportunities that you want to point out? Like where, where exactly should folks be investing right now? Yeah, so... Um, you know, uh, the, the nature side of investing is one that hasn't gotten a lot of focus. Um, you know, their impact investors have been much more focused on social causes, for example. Um, so I think this is a new category for, uh, for a lot of people. Um, and it's the reason why I wrote, wrote my book. Um, I think there are, more than seven categories uh, where I think there are significant investing opportunities. Let me just take, uh, you know, uh, one or two. Agriculture. You know, we've been, um, human beings have um, been growing food for about uh, 400,000 years. That's 20,000 generations of farmers um, in order to create the current food system that we have today. In the next 50 years, we're gonna to have to double the productivity of our food system, double in the next 50 years. Um, so 400,000 years, 50 years. That's a lot of need, a lot of opportunity. So everywhere in the agriculture space, whether it's new kinds of seeds, new kinds of cropping systems, ways of uh, improving the quality of our agricultural enterprises, adding organic matter back into soils, addressing you know, the huge water issues that are associated with agriculture. We need to do all of that work. 
And you know what? Most of that work is going to be done by the private sector. You know, there's a lot of, you know, talk about government and nonprofits, and they are important players here. And I don't want to be Pollyannish about, you know, the private sector either. There, you know, there's there are a lot of examples of where the private sector have been bad actors uh, here. But on the other hand, the private sector grows our food worldwide. It's not government that grows our food. We need to figure out how to help farmers. We need to figure out how to help the food system be better than it is today if we're going to solve those problems. That alone is a huge opportunity. Totally. That actually reminds me of a question I had, which is, what role does business play, particularly in funding biodiversity? Um, I feel like you say that like governments and nonprofits can't fund these protections alone, like biodiversity and ecosystem protection. So, yeah, what role does business play? Well, you know, in my view, this is a whole ecosystem that needs government to set policy. It needs nonprofits to, you know, support and test uh, innovative ideas. But it absolutely involves business and business investing because, you know, frankly, business is where the money is in this world. Um, I just saw a study uh, just before this interview um, where um, 70 percent of the nonprofits in the United States are experiencing dramatic drop offs in revenue because of the current uh, recession. We know already that government is spending trillions of dollars in this country just to support uh, the safety net. You know, if we're going to do new things, it's going to require the business sector to deploy capital and uh, and in, and engage in really important ways in shaping this this work. So um, it's absolutely critical that um, they become our partners in execution around these ideas. And it's their business opportunity, right? I mean, they should be motivated by the opportunity to find new solutions to all these problems. That's what made, you know, fortunes in the Industrial Revolution. And it will mean huge change and huge opportunity for entrepreneurs in the world that we live in today. By the time our interview runs on the podcast, we will have run an excerpt of your book um, on the on the website. And in that excerpt, you write that resistance to change is universal. Um, and in that particular chapter or in that section of the chapter, you're talking about conservation agriculture. And I'm curious about like what you think it will take for that type of agricultural practice and also impact investing. Like, what do you think? will have to change or like what will have to put down the resistance to change in order to reach the point of being successful and reaching like the full positive impact that um, investing in nature can have? Well, you know, first change is inevitable. It's, it's because these are things which are going to transform our, our world. Uh, between 80 and 90% of all the water in the world is used to grow uh, food and other agricultural uh, crops. So, um, you know, unless we manage our water better, where our food system is going to be under enormous stress. So change is inevitable. The question is, can we do that in a thoughtful and um, creative way that um, doesn't mean that millions of people starve in this world, but rather 
they find um, you know new types of growing crops and are able to make um, um, you know make the transition to a sustainable agricultural future. That's where government is important here. I mean, government needs to offer incentives. Uh, it's where impact investors, people who are on that edge of you know mission-based investing, you know, need to invest in new approaches. Um, but we have to work together. Just for one example, I've been working in India for the last four years, um, and one of the big challenges there is air pollution. Uh, and it turns out that at least a third of the air pollution comes from the burning of crop residues. You know, so a farmer, in order to clear away the rice straw so that he can plant his next straw, next crop, goes out and throws a match onto his field and burns that rice straw off. Uh, that requires uh, no effort on his part. You know, it's the cost of a match. Um, so it's hard to imagine anything cheaper than that if you're thinking short term. But if you're thinking long term, you realize that every time you burn that that straw off that field, you're depleting the organic matter of your soil and reducing its productivity. You're reducing its ability to absorb and hold uh, moisture and you're decreasing its uh, fertilizer uh, and nutrient value. So we need the role of government to say to farmers, no, you can't burn your crop residues. And at the same time, we need to provide farmers with solutions. You know, what is the alternative to burning crop residues? In this particular case in, in India, there are more than 15 manufacturers of a new type of what we call conservation seeding equipment. Um, and in India, they call it the happy seeder. <laughs> which is kind of a great Indian name, but it's a machine basically designed to pull behind the average tractor that incorporates the uh, straw back into the fields. And that reduces um, the amount of moisture. It improves the organic matter content of the soil. And importantly, it eliminates air pollution. So you have a, a virtuous circle. You know, millions of people are dying because of air pollution. You solve that problem. In the long term, you're investing in soil. You solve that problem. So we need to find a way to encourage farmers through policy, um, by agreement, um, to do the things that they know they need to do. Uh, and that's hard because that's change. A single match, burn your field, that's simple, cheap. I got to go out and redo the way I, I farm. That's harder. Uh, and we need to help everyone make that transition by having the right policies and the right incentives to make that happen. Incentives are incredibly important here, by the way. I mean, look at what's happened to solar. Um, you know, that 30% tax credit that people are, a tax credit that people can get for installing solar has created a whole solar industry across the world, literally. Uh, and we now see solar um, competitive with coal and with uh, fossil fuels and other forms of non-renewable sources. So government acting to create incentives to get people to do the right things um, is all part of this ecosystem that we need to support uh, innovation across uh, our economic system. Do you see like those incentives coming into play in the next year or like how how long do you think it will take for those incentives to actually be put in place? Well, incentives come in all kinds of forms. I mean, there are financial incentives, there's policy incentives, 
Yes. You know, when we think about green business, you know, naturally we think about a carbon tax and we think about, you know, pricing the true cost of emitting carbon into our atmosphere as a pollution. And, uh, you know, so charging for that impact on the environment is obviously one of the things that will create uh, the greatest change. But that's going to take time. And certainly in the current political climate, it's very hard to imagine how that's going to happen. I mean, let me just give you another example. I mean, many of your listeners, I'm sure, will have heard of the yellow shirt movement in France. What the yellow shirts, which are largely poor rural people, uh, have been saying is that uh, the government had proposed a gas tax designed to reduce the dependence on fossil fuels by forcing people to do other things. The yellow shirts living in rural areas, you know, found that as a tax against their livelihood. So the government of France failed to fully recognize how uh, in order to do something good, which is reduce the amount of dependence on fossil fuels, they actually have to create a social safety net to support those people who are going to be the most impacted by this. So unless we're prepared to do that, we're never going to be successful in getting these kinds of pressures uh, against uh, some of the most egregious uh, pollutants that we have in our in our world. We need to provide uh, alternatives for poor people and build that safety net. And there are lots of really good economic ideas of how to do that. We need the political will of government to accomplish that. And I think that's coming, uh, honestly, every day. I think people recognize that we live in a global world. Right now, you know, the fact that we're all connected together in this pandemic is, you know, a lesson enough about the globalness of our world. Climate change is a global problem. We need to work together in order to solve it. It's not an option. That's the thing that people have to get in their mind. It's not like, well, we don't really need to address it now. It's, it's here and now. I mean, people need fresh water. Um, you know, people need food. If we're not prepared to change how we manage our systems, then um, those will be huge crises ahead that will, you know, frankly, be far more devastating than even this terrible pandemic that we find ourselves in. And I feel like you said that people are starting to see that these issues are important to address right now. Um, is that something that keeps you hopeful or is there anything else that gives you hope or confidence about the impact of nature, um, based impact investing and about its impacts in particular, and also about how much it will grow in the coming years. I feel like I kind of want to end our, our interview with something that gives listeners some hope that we're actually addressing these problems. Yeah. Um, you know, none other than Dwight Eisenhower said, um, uh, f uh, uh, farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from a cornfield. You know, the work that we're asking our farmers, our foresters, our fishermen, uh, our small business owners uh, to do is hard, hard work. But I also think that they're up for it. Don't ever underestimate the will of the private sector to engage and develop and invent new solutions. So I'm optimistic because everywhere I go, I see people thinking about these things, changing how they uh, manage their businesses to address uh, some of these big issues. 
and excited about the opportunities. They think to themselves, if I do this, then uh, I will have a better business and my business will prosper. And someone who, you know, builds their business, say, on fossil fuels, um, you know, they're they're the ones that are going to lose out in the long run. So I'm optimistic. I think we're at the dawn of a new kind of revolution here. Uh, and uh, entrepreneurs of all stripes, be they within government, within nonprofits and in businesses, you know, really have it in their power to change the world. Well, Bill, thank you for sharing your optimism with us. And also thank you for coming on to the Green Biz 350 podcast. My pleasure. I'm the senior energy analyst at GreenBiz, and it has been a heavy couple of weeks. As I've been watching the news and struggling to make sense of the depth of American racism, I've also wanted to know, how does this moment connect to the clean energy sector and the fight for clean energy equity? So I reached out to three African-American men who work in clean energy. They made it clear, the protests in the street and the fight for access to clean energy, they're the same fights. It's, a, it's an intertwined struggle. It's not separate. I spoke to Alexis Kirtan, the former electric vehicle fellow at Grid Alternatives, which is an organization that works to bring clean energy and job trainings to low-income communities. The right to breathe you know, isn't just related to surviving interactions with police. You know, It pertains with um, you know, surviving and being able to breathe, you know, clean air. I also spoke to Bartice Cox of Groundswell. Groundswell is an organization that works to make community solar available to renters in low-income communities. It's so clear that this is about so much more than George. He's like the, the catalyst, but, you know, this, this, you know, it's no secret that these problems are super deep. Finally, I spoke to Taj Eldridge, who is the Senior Investment Director at Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. These grievances that, that a lot of our own American citizens have had with our own country has been about the inequalities and, and many different things. And I think when we talk about energy access, really, it's a, it's a uh, economic issue. So I want to turn it over to these three speakers to better understand what it means for the Black community in America to be left behind by the clean energy sector and why it's everyone's responsibility to make sure that those that work in clean energy and sustainability look more like the community that it needs to serve. Here's Alexis, Bartice, and Tosh. The African-American community is being hit first and the hardest by things involving the environment, things involving energy, such as energy poverty. And energy poverty is the lived experience of having to spend more than a third of your income on your utility bills or the means in which to heat and cool your home. There's cities like LaGrange, Georgia, where, you know, half the town is doing really well. 
other half of the city is like, you know, the, the energy bill is more than their rent, more than their mortgage. Like they, they can't pay both. Um, and, you know, comp- you, comp- you you take that and you you also add like the impacts of like, you know, how hard it is to find a job, good education um, and to even get an apartment in the first place. Um, not to mention it being, you know, the electricity bill being more than your rent. Um, you know, it's it's a situation. It's, it's, if I were a starting a new job you know it's like you want to put people in a situation to succeed right and like you, we're not putting people in a situation where they can succeed when they're spending that much on their energy um consumption and so i i think when you have a lack of jobs and you have a lack of, of access and you have a lack of, of money that are in communities that impacts education that impacts access to food that impacts how people are living and so i i definitely think that economics is a huge part of it and sometimes you know all these other issues that that we see from from health disparities to other type of disparities as well the root cause of that is or in my my eyes two two issues racism and 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 economic racism economic discrimination equity and intersectionality is like the foundation buzzword of the last four years like (laughs) this is like where the big money people are moving with their strategies and I, I think the next step is like making sure that money gets to the right people. Like right now, this this like equity push, it's it's brandy. Like it looks good. It, it's you know it's it. I don't know. It just looks good, right? Um, and it sounds good. But for people of color who are suffering right now, it doesn't feel good. When I think of uh, solutions for energy access it's wrapped into solutions for all the other things too right and i think a a big thing that we have to be aware of is in like solving for one problem realizing that it's connected to all these other issues and there's there's it's not impossible to solve them all like we can fix everything When you're when you look to hire people of color, like don't do token hires, man. You need to hire in droves, like. And, and there's this there's this response to that about there uh, there aren't many qualified black people who want to do this. We can't find them. Yes, you can. You have to find them at historically black colleges and universities. Like you have to change your hiring practices. You have to change your recruiting practices, and you have to change how you frame these issues. Um, because we're here, like we're here, we're doing the work and we're, and we're ready. For black and brown community members, first generation immigrants, like you're, uh, you're like charge as a young person is, you know, go and get a job, like go to college and make sure that I'm investing in your education in a way that like, it's gonna be something fruitful. And so I, I don't, you know, I think that like environmental sustainability degrees, you know, clean energy <laughs> degrees for me were kind of out of the question. <laughs> you know, my, my parents were like, um, yeah, like maybe like go for a job that we've heard of. So I think that right now, like the onus is actually on, you know, these companies, you know, do outreach, you know, and like not just in the big cities, like not just at, you know, Howard and Hampton, but, you know, take it to Texas Southern, you know, go to Dillard, you know, go to like go into the deep south, go into rural areas, recruit at these community colleges tell people about the jobs that are available and, you know, push people into them. You know, seven years ago, I had no idea even even caring about environmentalism. 
um, until I, I, I was involved in this. And I went to a meeting and realized that it's less about saving the world and less about saving, you know, the, the animals, but about saving me. Like when I was in PRSA, um, Public Relations Society of America, like, you know, there were men and women that like, you know, saw me and were like, hey, like, we want to show you how this industry works because you'd be good for it. You know, and I think that most people working in D.C. or New York who are not from here have had that person. We, we never reach out to get other people who have no idea about this about this industry or about the subject involved. And we always just talk to to each other. There's plenty of competent people that want to do the work. They just don't know it exists. One of the things I've been telling people and I say all the time is that there's not a pipeline issue. Never was. What it was is a relationship issue. It amazes me when people say they can't find people to interview or can't find people to, to, to have these conversations with because I see them in the room all the time. And so that's been one of my frustrations that I've been wanting to, to, to fix. So that way we can we can really get more people who are like me. Man, I can go into so many specifics about my experience, like going into a, a CARB meeting and myself and Taria McCumber being the only black people in that room, learning about what climate investments are, learning about the lack of funding going to black and brown communities, like learning about the lack of black people or people of color leading these initiatives. I'm tired of the excuse of like, they don't exist or they're not here. They are here. You're not letting them in. You're not giving them that power. You're not allowing for them to address these issues. Remove racist hiring practices from these historically white institutions. So I feel like the conversations around environmentalism, around energy have been very homogeneous. And it's like the organizations and the people talk to each other instead of getting other people into the mix. And I, and I worry that, you know, Right now, like as solar becomes cheaper and the wind becomes cheaper and all these alternatives become more affordable, I'm worried about them modeling their future infrastructures of their business on, you know, um, fossil fuel driven, you know, um, infrastructures. <laughs> and right now, you know, if you look at the leadership in the solar industry, it looks a lot like the leadership in the fossil fuel, you know, industry. You know, it's a mostly white, mostly male. Um, wealthy folks like we need to start addressing that and making sure that more you know people of color and people from these communities that are facing real challenges with energy and affordability and access you know can be a part of those conversations and become a part of those institutions there needs to be a sense of urgency like there's never been before That was Alexis Kirtan, formerly of Grid Alternatives, Bartise Cox of Groundswell, and Taj Eldridge of Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. For GreenBiz, I'm Sarah Golden. This episode is sponsored by UPS. To honor World Environment Day, UPS is matching the carbon offsets of all packages shipped via its carbon neutral program in June. To start shipping more sustainably, visit sustainability.ups.com forward slash match.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six of them every week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay safe, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in. 